Amen. Let's, let's turn to the Lord and pray together this morning once again. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We come realizing that we are those who are deeply in need, deeply insufficient for all of these things. Lord, we need you. We need you more than anything or anyone else. And may we, even as we come this morning, you help us to come with this heart, with this mind, recognizing that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to you, God, and not to us. You are God. May that be evident this morning. May that be evident beyond this morning into the afternoon, into the evening, into the week, in the weeks and months and years ahead. May you work and may you do a work in us and in our hearts and in our lives and in our nation and in the world for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your glory, O Lord. We long for that. And we look to you in all these things. Father, we don't know what lies ahead But we trust you, and we entrust to you this service as we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. We don't pause our worship when we come to the word of God. We come and continue to worship, and may our hearts also reflect that, Lord. And so we look to you, though we are afflicted in every way, we are not crushed, Perplexed, we're not driven to despair. We may be persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Maybe we struck down, but we're not destroyed. We look to our Lord as our hope. And we, He is our Lord Jesus Christ. And what a Lord He is. And what a Lord He will be into all of eternity throughout the eons and ages to come. And so, Father, help us. May your Spirit work. In our hearts right now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, it is a genuine joy to be able to meet here together and to have, I know not not everyone is here this morning, but it is a joy to see all of your faces and to have you here that we could worship the Lord together. Um, you know, and I, I am, I've been looking forward to for a long time these kind of initial steps of reopening Haven. And, you know, it's certainly my hope and my prayer that we can continue to move forward and continue pressing on and reopening Haven. That one day, hopefully sooner rather than later, we will be fully reopened and we can take away these temporary measures of, you know, every other pew being marked off and the masks and all these other things as well, and we can just worship freely to the the Lord. And so I'm praying that, even as we're hearing the news of an uptick and cases of, you know, COVID-19 and all these things, you know, uh, let us pray, church, 
And let us pray that we would be able to meet soon and very soon. So last week, we appropriately paused our time walking through the Gospel of John to hear from James chapter 2. So regarding all of the various things that are going on in our country, the unrest, the rioting, the racism, to see how and see the gospel-distorting nature of partiality, which is exactly what we saw. Well, this morning, we will be coming back then to the Gospel of John. We have been, I've been preaching through this amazing Gospel over the last months. And so we are continuing then with John chapter 5. So if you want to turn there, and I will be reading from verse 1 to verse 15 here, where we see, which will be plain enough as I read it here in a moment, we see Jesus mercifully and purposefully heals. So may God bless the reading, hearing, and receiving of his word. John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which have five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And so Jesus he said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to pick up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Amen. So, as we have been progressing through this gospel in John chapter 4, we saw Jesus. He began his you know, journey on to Galilee, and then he stopped in Samaria, where we met the Samaritan woman. And then he continues on, and he presses into Galilee. And now, here, following Jesus' time in Galilee, which 
You know, there's more that happened here, which the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us. But returning now here, he comes to Jerusalem for this unnamed feast. So we aren't for certain what feast this was. You know, John, he doesn't tell us what particular feast it was. It could have been, you know, the Feast of Unleavened or uh, Tabernacles, or it could have been uh, the Passover, perhaps. But we're not told. And as we've seen in the Gospel of John, you know, John does things like that intentionally. He's not kind of accidentally leaving out the name. He wants us instead to kind of focus on what's ahead. He wants us to see the healing here and the Jews' antagonistic response to Jesus more than to consider what feast Jesus is in Jerusalem for. So he wants us to kind of, without fetters, just to come and to hear what happens here and to read what happens next. And so this passage then, as we come into it, it takes us to the northern part of Jerusalem. So just outside of the northern wall of the city, where there you would find the sheep gate. And so near this gate, very near this gate, there's a path kind of leading there to a pool where the sheep, they would be washed prior to entering into the temple complex. So here is where we find this man. And here also is where Jesus finds this man. So this was a man who had been you know, disabled with some you know, malady of some sort, which made him unable to walk. And you know, that for 38 years, that, that's a long time. And this was a man then who knew a great deal of personal hardship and suffering. And there, you know, during this time, there were no chairs for him to get around in. And so he, he would have had to have been either carried, like on a bed, like a stretcher, from one place to the next, or he would have to have someone come, or someone or two people come and actually physically take him and carry him from one place to the next. I mean, I mean how many people can you think of that would be willing to do that for this man all the time? Well, that was what it was for him for 38 years. A long time. So, in October, you know, I'll be, Lord willing, 38 years old. So, this man, he has borne this ailment for longer than I have been alive. So, nine years ago, you know, I had my own kind of brief experience of not being able to walk. So I had you know, gotten a strep infection in my hip. I won't go into all the, the details that surround this, but I think I got it very likely from a hospital. So I got this infection in my hip, and I was literally unable to walk for five weeks. <laughs> you know, I had to learn to walk again, of course, with my wife's help, Megan. She was amazing during this time coming and helping me and getting all these things for me in the midst of not being able to walk. And so I had to learn to walk again before I could return to work, but I did 
learn to walk again. You can tell I'm walking. You've seen me walking today. Yet this, this man, he went not five brief weeks. And it's brief compared to what he went through. But he went 1,976 weeks or 13,870 days or so without walking. That's, can you imagine that? This is a different day than our day. That's struggle. But all this will change here, beginning with only three words. As I read this, I, those words stopped me, and perhaps, you know, maybe, maybe you missed them, or maybe you saw them as well. Three words there in verse 6. Jesus saw him. So Jesus, he saw the man. And in this seeing of this man here, there are two parts to Jesus kind of seeing this man. And the first is that Jesus saw him. And you could put him in italics. So here, with Jesus kind of stopping and seeing this man, invalid, we see the incredible and bountiful mercy and compassion of our Savior. How appropriate it is and how frequently we need to, even as we have seen again and again in this gospel, we need to ponder the mercy that God has shown us. You know, we saw it last week in James The mercy of God. And here we see it demonstrated again, very literally, in our Lord. I mean, hundreds of people perhaps pass this man by every day. But Jesus saw him. And it's ironic, isn't it? You know, we so often, you know, read of mercy in Scripture. We so often see mercy in Scripture And we so often forget to be merciful and mercy-filled. It's not like one of those subjects that you kind of miss as you're reading the Bible. You cannot miss mercy throughout all of Scripture. I mean, Genesis chapter 3 into 4. Mercy. We can kind of just stroll right by it and And then we don't reflect this as we engage with others and we forget the incredible mercy of God that Jesus is demonstrating here and we see over and over and over again in Scripture and that He has personally shown us if you know Jesus Christ. Now something so prominent and persistently repeated, magnified, and illustrated illustrated in Scripture is surely a call for us not to simply merely nod at being kind of a merciful people, but for us to wholesale embrace and to drink up all that we're called to be, to be a merciful people and taking in every last drop of it. Lord, help me be a merciful person, a compassionate person like you are here. And you are again and again here and throughout your word and even now.
It's a mercy I'm standing here before you. The fact that I came to faith in Christ years ago doesn't end the fact that that's a mercy, and that's a mercy even to this very point that I'm here or that you're sitting there. Mercy. And so we need to behold our model here. Behold our model of Christ. And so take in his example and put on the clothing of Christ. It's a fabric that is to is threaded throughout with mercy and it is, a, is something, a clothing that we are to put on ourselves. And man, we need that today. We need, we need to put on mercy, brothers and sisters in Christ, because what is the, what is the world in need of? I mean, such an intense unrest, such a, a severe disagreement on all levels. And here then we are, as believers in Jesus Christ, we come and we see others who are made in the image of God and we see them for that and we recognize the mercy of God that He has shown us and then we gladly show mercy and compassion to others. Look at mercy He has shown me. And so Jesus saw Him. That's one part. And then the other part is Jesus, also He knew Him. So your version here, it may say that Jesus learned that the man had been there or had been that way for a long time, like he had discovered it or something like that, like he had kind of saw it or he had talked to someone perhaps and he found out, oh yeah, he, he's been there for 38 years? Okay, well thank you for telling me that. Well that, that's not quite what this word is getting at here. I mean, learned isn't a bad word, but it doesn't quite convey the fullness of the word that we're given here. Jesus he didn't just simply learn. He, he supernaturally knew. He knew this man was this way for 38 years. As we've already seen, Jesus, what did he do? He, he knew Peter. He knew Nathaniel. He knew Nicodemus. He knew the Samaritan woman. Now Jesus knows this man also. Now, you may not know others supernaturally like Jesus does here, but we together can recognize and acknowledge and be aware of the spiritual and physical plight of those around us. Our days are heavy with a call to recognize the plight of others. And this extends to any and to all and to everyone. So how often, you know, we may go here and we may go there, we may see people but not see people, if you know what I mean. You know, people passing this man day after day, you see him but you don't see him. And I just wonder how many people in our own lives are like that. You see him but you don't see him. Well, Jesus saw this man. And perhaps, you know, the person you see or you don't see by, by you at the grocery store, you know, the, re- the receptionist at the doctor's office, the person you pass at Lowe's, people on social media, and yes, 
people on social media. I get it. I mean, you, you go to Twitter right now, and it will be a fury of all kinds of mean-spirited, ugly conversation and words and statements and just destroying people again and again. But we see that, and we as believers should see that and see beyond that to the people who are saying it. And so we don't miss people. I think that so often can be behind why we just go and attack people, forgetting they're made in God's image, even on social media. Or perhaps, you know, a coworker you go by and you, you see every day, your boss, your neighbors, that person that you know right now that is in need. I don't know who they are, but you know. Are we aware of the people around us? And I don't mean that we simply extend physical mercies to people and say we've done what we're called to do, if you know what I mean. We don't just help them and say, go be warm, be filled on your way. We recognize both the physical need and the spiritual need. That means we don't simply leave people and help them without telling them the most merciful and compassionate and gracious news in all the world. We do both. We, need, we wed them together. And they are not to be severed from one another. And we come and we, we show mercy in both these ways. And so let's, let's plant trees in our hearts that bear a fruit of readiness to speak the gospel and extend our hands in mercy to others. And this also means we need to be a people who don't miss the present moment. There is no doubt that we are tempted from a thousand directions right now to falter right here. All about us, and you know this, I don't even have to say it, but all about us are endless things crying out, give me your time, give me your attention, Give me your life while the question hovering over all of these things is, are we being faithful to what God has called us to? Are we being there? And we may well find that we spent our days absent from the present rather than engaged in it. A whole life and what were we doing? Well, I was on my phone. I didn't, I didn't notice my, my children grow up. I was there watching all my grandchildren. Oh, yeah, there's somewhere around here. You know, I've got some on my phone I've got to look up. You know? Now, as I say this, you know, I use my phone. <laughs> you see me use my phone today. I, you know, I use other technology as you do, so I am not an alarmist here saying let's all do away with technology. But we surely need to be aware of how Satan is deviously trying to deceive us here. And trying to waste our lives. 
the things that we ought not. So we need to be aware of his tactics. He would have us be so distracted and so preoccupied with other things that we miss the main things. We miss people whom God loves and for whom Christ died. So let me ask, how are you orienting your time and energy toward being aware of and showing mercy and compassion toward those around you? When you hear me say mercy and compassion, I include gospel witness and gospel action. So how exactly or how are you actively engaging those around you in view of the Great Commission? Now, as we kind of very quickly went into these verses here, let me, let me take a moment and back up a bit in our verses here in verses 1 through 5. So as I read, you might have noticed something strange about the verse numbers here. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you just read along with me and maybe you read on the screen. But if you have your Bible there, there's something strange there. If you have the ESV, this is how it goes. That's what I read from here. It goes verses, verse 1. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. Where did verse 4 go? <laughs> so there it is. You know verse 4. So if you have you know, an NIV or an NASB, you, you'll see that as well. You know, other translations here, they may bracket or include uh, verse 4 in some way. So why is it not there in some translations bracketed in others, and footnoted still in others. Well, it's not there because, and you can read the footnote if you have your physical Bible there. It's at the bottom, generally, if it's not in the verse itself. It's not there because after careful study of the most reliable and oldest of manuscripts, praise the Lord for Greek scholars, but Greek scholars realized that verses 3b through 4, they were inserted later and not part of the original manuscripts. Now, why does that matter? Because we want to be as faithful as we can to what God wrote in the original manuscripts. So, it was an editorial edition. And here, again, is where we thank God for Greek scholars who have labored long and hard over these things. This is not denying inerrancy. This is not denying infallibility. This is not denying the authority of Scripture. This is not denying the sufficiency of Scripture. This is not denying the clarity of Scripture. This is a desire and a longing to be as faithful to God's Word as we can be because we believe it to be God's inspired Word. And as they labored, they saw this and that's why it's footnoted. So why was it, why was it originally added then? Well, it was added to make sense for seven. So I'm just going to read here. So verse three that we have in our Bible. And then I'll include this editorial edition as well, or the missing verses. And so it would say something like this. So 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then here's the addition. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So I, maybe you're like me, as I've read the Bible over the years, I've always wondered about that verse in particular. But let me, let me say right off that this verse is helpful. It tells us why the man was waiting for the water to be stirred. It informs us why this, why would he be sitting there and why would it matter for the water to be stirred? And so it informs us of this, even though it's editorial and that explains the editorial comment. You don't quite understand verse 7? Well, let me tell you this. And so he thought that if he could be the first one into the water, when it stirred, he would be healed. So these editorial verses give us insight into something that was going on at this time period. So there was a kind of a superstition that people believed during this time that a person may be healed if they got into the waters first. There's no passages of Scripture. There's nothing that orients us this way. This is something that somewhere along the line that they took up and began believing. And so in reality, what was happening here is the, the stirring of the water likely came from like a natural spring that fed into the pool and began stirring the waters. Now, hear me here as well. I am not up here saying that God cannot do supernatural things. I am not up here saying that God could not do even something like this. We know God can. We know God, he even comes, Jesus heals this man. And God powerfully has done miracles again and again throughout all of Scripture. Parting the Red Seas really, literally, physically So don't hear me say that this is uh, contrary to that, but we want to be faithful as we can to what the original manuscript said. And so, although this verse is not original, we still may learn from it and see here the inadequacy of superstitions. And honestly, this is exactly what Jesus is doing here as well. He is challenging even something of this time and what they're thinking here. So this is, this is not a challenge to inspiration and errancy of Scripture. This is a challenge to reliance on anything that is antithetical to Scripture itself. And of that, we should be concerned. And so, we live right now in a, a very rather superstitious time ourselves. So let me just give you a few examples of this, and you'll know them as soon as I say them. So, Friday the 13th. Do you have a problem with that day? How about black cats? Whoa, you know, watch out. Walking under a ladder. How about that one? How about breaking a mirror? Don't do that. How about knock on wood? What is, what is that? The word luck how many times do we use that word in our conversation? Luck. You know, crossing your fingers. 
Maybe something great will happen if I just cross my fingers. You know, don't, here's one. Don't say anything negative or bad. Or you might just cause something bad to happen as well. And then we could talk about sports. <laughs> that one guy who's been coming to the game, and every time he comes, that your team loses. It must be that guy. What about wearing socks every single game to keep the winning streak going? I mean, where is all this? I mean, so, you know, we are a, we see superstition everywhere. And if you really want to get in some trouble, do all of these things at once. Walk under a ladder while a black cat is crossing and break a mirror as well and put an umbrella inside the house and so on. So if you kind of hear all that and you feel kind of a leery sense in your stomach right now, you know, hearing, well, I'm not going to do that. I don't know, just in case. Well, you've taken a bite out of superstitious ideas for yourself. You know, I remember when I was young, you know, I carried around with me a rabbit's foot. You know, sometimes I, I would even carry two or three with me, you know, and, and I, I would uh, take them to school in my backpack, you know, just in case. So you want, you want to know a culture's influence on you. I mean, look and see. Even in hearing all these things, you kind of feel it here. Well, let me say this, though. Our faith is not based on superstition. We believe in the eternal triune God who is sovereignly ruling and reigning over all things. God is in control. It is not the universe. It is not luck. It is not karma. It is not chance or anything else. God reigns. So if we say it's based on luck, well, who's behind the luck? What force is at work to bring about luck? We see and say, God is in control. So it isn't here from the water that this man finds healing, like superstitions at the time, but it's from Jesus. Jesus comes, and what the water couldn't do, he comes and certainly can do and does do. And unlike prosperity preachers today, this man, he was not halfway healed, he was not hardly healed, he was completely, immediately, and fully healed. Jesus said, get up, take up your bed, and walk, and it was done. And just to ensure that we get this right here, so some say you, this is a big part of prosperity gospel, faith, you have to have faith to be healed. If you don't have enough faith, you're not going to be healed of your sickness. Well, there is no hint that this man had any faith whatsoever that preceded this healing. He's even not even quite getting what Jesus is saying. So this was purely done out of the mercy, compassion, and love of our Savior. So, trust in this sovereign and true Savior. Trust in this sovereign and true Savior. Jesus knew of this man's suffering. He knows 
yours. He knows ours as well. And that is no platitude. It's true. The Gospel of John exists to say, see what God has done to save sinners. See His incredible love. Believe. Believe in Him. So as Jesus saw this man, know He surely sees you as well. And He is with you if you know Him, dear saint. And if you don't know Him, He is saying, come I will heal you in the way you most need, and that is the healing between, the separation between you and God. I'll give you spiritual life, eternal life through me. That's what Jesus says. Now, after this man is healed, this passage takes a turn that we really would not have expected. Yet at the same time, we do. You know, if you've been going to church for any amount of time, you know what happens to Jesus. But in the Gospel of John specifically, we've been given hints along the way. And now we are seeing very specifically opposition for Jesus is coming. So this man... He is then questioned by the Jews. So we'll look more at that aspect of it next week. The questioning, the Sabbath, regulations, the the law that they were, at least the rules that they were putting in place there um, when we come to verses 16 and 18. But for now, let's hone in here specifically on Jesus' second encounter with this man. So the words, this kind of interaction that he has. So after the Jews, they questioned The man, Jesus, he goes and he finds the man in the temple and he says, or he tells the man, see, so verse 14, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So what are we to make of those words? So in chapter 9, we have almost the exact opposite of this statement. So Jesus John chapter 9, he heals the man born blind and he tells the disciples, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you see the opposite nature of this? So that's John 9, though. That's not contradiction. Jesus is making two different points. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, here we see Sin's ill effects. Sin's ill effects. So let's let's consider these effects of sin. First, I'm going to kind of talk about it generally. And then we'll look specifically at what Jesus in his statement says here in verse 14. So first, generally, we are all broken because of sin. We all get sick because of sin, generally. So that is true of all of us. So a quick test here. How many of you have never gotten sick in your life? Right. I didn't expect anything different than that. I mean, the fact is, is that we see sickness as a normal part of life 
because it is an example of just how intertwined into our lives the brokenness of sin is. I mean, the very fact that our nation and the world has been rocked by the coronavirus is evidence that our world is not where it should be. It is like a megaphone saying, well, the virus is here. Well, guess what? The brokenness and the curse of sin is evident everywhere. It's not gone away. People have been dying from the coronavirus and still are dying. So, we say broadly then, that all sickness is due to sin. The curse of sin. Adam's rebellion against God. The curse of the fall that enters in. And now we get sick. We die because of the fall. So that's general. And now, however, in view of Jesus' specific statement here, we may also say, specific sicknesses may be due to sin. Now that, that right there may be a hard one for you. It's like, wait a minute, I was on board here for, until you said that. Well, that, that's what Jesus is saying here to this man. We aren't told what this man was doing and he seems to be still doing or in some way taking part in. But his sickness is directly related to his sin. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Tying it directly to what happened to you before. So this isn't the only place in scripture that we see this either. So it's not one instance of this. Well, I'll give you two examples. So the first, 1 Corinthians 11. So Paul, there in 1 Corinthians 11, Lord's Supper. You, you know where that goes. He rebukes the Corinthians for taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And because they were, some of those, some of the Corinthians were getting sick and even dying because of their sin. So that's one example. Another, James 5, is another. So after James, he exhorts believers to have you know, the elders uh, or the pastors of a church pray over the sick. He exhorts them again to confess their sins that they may be healed. He's seeing a connection between, well, you, your sin it may very well have had to do with your being sick. So again, we see this connection between sickness and sin. That's not the only place. We see it in the Psalms as well. In other places, Acts. So, now this is not always the case. You know, we'll see that in John 9 when we get there. But here, let me just pause and say it again. This is not always the case. And I mean to say that because perhaps some of you may take this and say, and start bringing to bear on everything that happens in your life, every single sickness, and say, well, I've, I have done something sinful, and that is why I'm sick. But that's, not, that's not the way that we, we should receive this. This is not like a, a, something where we just look at every single aspect of our lives and begin challenging these things. But we do need to see that Jesus is saying this. 
There are times when our sickness may be directly related to our sin, and that may cause you to fear. But it is most certainly an exhortation for us to repent and to confess our sins to God and to examine ourselves and to say, after hearing a verse like this or these other ones, to say, no, that's saying something too. I I remember pastoring a church and I don't know but I know that this church in particular was a very divided church and they took regularly of the Lord's Supper but they were also a very sick people and I just wonder We need to examine ourselves. So, however, after all this, above all, what we need to see here is Jesus is telling this man, and he's telling us there is a greater judgment that is coming. The man, he does not believe in Jesus here. I mean, it's incredible. He gets healed, and he goes to the Jews, and they question him, and he's kind of like, oh, wasn't me, you know, is that guy, you know, and then then when he finds out that it is Jesus, he could rejoice you know, as he's in the temple worshiping. But he, what does he do? He goes and he knows they're, they have this opposition against Jesus and he goes and he tells them who Jesus, it was Jesus who did it. So even after being healed, he doesn't go and tell others about Jesus, but he goes and tells the Jews who healed him. But Jesus, he is saying to him, you have been healed, but see your greater need for me before it's too late. You know, I personally do not know what lies ahead in the days and the weeks and months to come. But let me tell you, Jesus will return. It will happen. And when that will be, I do not know. But I do know judgment is coming. Christ will return. And He is calling you and all to repent and believe the gospel. You look at everything going in our nation, I just think of, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So we see that this is a purposeful healing. Even as the man does not believe in the man, the Jews, they rage. Jesus is purposefully healing. He is healing that you may believe in him. He's healing for you who may be watching online as well, that you may believe in him. Saint and sinner alike. Trust and entrust, believe and put your faith in Christ. And let me say, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, He can save you. Just as He really healed this man, He really saves as well. And He can make you this very day right with God. Your sins have separated you from God. Through Jesus, you could be made right because he came and died, was buried and rose again, victorious over the grave and saying that I am the way, the truth and life. So you can come to him.
and he will save you. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and these verses have many challenging things. I realize that challenge a lot of things that kind of are even outliers in our lives, things that we perhaps don't think a lot about, things that we perhaps even dismiss as okay or things that you know we, we don't necessarily even think there's anything wrong with them. But Lord, may you help us, Father, to come to your word right now and to receive it and to say, you know, if there's anywhere in my life where I, you know, I'm not walking in mercy and compassion towards others, may you help us put on Christ and remember all that Christ has done for us. And even now that all of our sins, if we know the Lord, have been paid for, they're atoned for, and we have eternal life in Christ, and He will keep us until the end. So help us to be mindful of that, and help us, Lord, to respond, and help us, Lord, as well, to challenge anything in our lives that doesn't recognize that you're in control, that you are over your world, and we can trust you in it. And help us, Lord, to examine our lives, Ask if there's anything in us where we need to repent and walk in your word and ways. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that even now they would trust and entrust themselves to Christ. They would repent and believe in this one Savior of the world. We thank you, Father. We ask you to do this even as we know you are working and you will work. In Jesus' name, amen.